I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Nothing Impossible on News Radio 1120. KMOX. Welcome in. Michael Calhoun with you. Travis Sheridan is in transit. He's coming back to the United States from Sydney, Australia. So what we're going to do this week on the show is take you to some events that have happened in the last several days uh, related to innovation in St. Louis. We'll delve deep into geospatial or mapping technology. And there was also a seminar to help people who are interested in getting into cannabis business. That's at the end of the show. But right now, let's talk with Ness Sandoval an associate professor of sociology at St. Louis University about the Geospatial 101 series at SLU. So this is the, uh, the just another in a continuing series of events that you're holding to, to help people understand what geospatial is and the, and the different applications it can have? Yes, it's to, tr- it's to try to um, give the community opportunity to come to St. Louis University to get a sense of the emerging technology that's uh, having an impact on our understanding of quality of life, the human condition, and um, how we can translate this information uh, to policy. And so you're talking about uh, spatial statistics and a lot of societal kind of statistics. Talk about what what this focused on today. Our focus was on, um, just to give examples of how we could map poverty, how we can map racial inequality, we can map obesity, life expectancy, uh, but we can create very um, simple maps that provide an understanding of what's happening in the city and the suburbs. Uh, but often those maps can be misleading because not everything on a map is statistically significant. And so if you're a government with limited resources, you can't fix everything in your city. But if you're able to employ a set of statistics, you're able to identify which areas are in the most need statistically, more objectively, and use your resources more efficiently. So what are some examples of, you you could think of actual migration of people, you could think of mapping poverty, health outcomes? One example I presented here tonight is a map of population change in the city. So the narrative that we generally hear is that the city is losing population, and that's true. We've been losing population since 1950. But if you look at the latest data, you see that there are parts of the city that are actually gaining population. So what the maps allow us to do is, like, well, that general narrative is we do have a net loss, but there are some neighborhoods that are experiencing tremendous gain in population. And then we're able to look at, well, who are the people that are moving into the city? And we're able to say these are 20 to 24-year-olds, 25 to 29-year-olds, a younger population that are moving into the central corridor, moving into downtown. So that that story that the city's shrinking is true, but it's also true that there are neighborhoods in the city that are actually gaining population, and they're revitalizing these areas, and there's tremendous demand to live in these areas. And so that story is also true, and that's what the map allows us to do. And then we're able to provide statistics that say, well, what's what's associated with that population growth? Is it uh, the types of properties, or is restaurants, is crime down? And so we look at factors that are associated with neighborhoods that are gaining population, and then factors that are associated with neighborhoods that are losing people, because we can see from the map that 
you have neighborhoods that are still losing people. So both stories can be true, but you only see it spatially, right? If you just see a chart, you come up with one conclusion, the city's losing people. And that's not necessarily true. Is this a case of we, for decades, have had these reams and mountains of data, but we haven't been able to crunch them until AI and machine learning and, and computers and algorithms have come along, and now that we've got this technology, we can glean all of these observations we wouldn't have been able to figure out before? So this is, this is really about emerging technology. The, the, data, um, the amount of data that's available to us today is just incredible. And so um, the, one of the biggest obstacles was computer power and memory. Once that became very affordable, we were able to um, analyze this data. But the second real innovation is a lot of this data is in the cloud, and we simply have to go to the cloud to get it and analyze it now. You don't need the person entering each data point individually, manually anymore. Not at all. And so uh, the point I was making with the comment is that it used to be when I was in grad school, we would have to wait months and months and months for data to become available that is available within hours now. And there's so much data that can be collected through sensors, whether it's, I'm looking at my watch here, health information, or sensors along streets, or data measurements even automated now. Yes, yeah, so this is, this we're collecting data real time on our cell phones, cameras on the interstate. So the amount of data that's out there is uh, tremendous. I'm a social scientist, so we, we tend to work with fairly small data sets, like maybe a million. I created my first data set that was a terabyte um, a couple years ago. And that was like, a, I'm like, wow, it's a terabyte of data. And that's big for me. But now that's a, that would be, I, I wouldn't have to put much work now into creating a terabyte of data. That's, that's how much data we have. And uh, so we, we started a project on Twitter. And one can imagine the amount of data you're taking from Twitter when you start getting XY coordinates and where people are tweeting, they're moving around the city and tweeting. So it's, we're the future for geospatial science and being able to work with spatial data and trying to understand not only what's, what's happening in geographical neighborhoods, but the content itself is important. And so um, there's tremendous opportunities for people to kind of see what the future looks like with artificial intelligence, deep learning models and algorithms to help humans kind of understand the data that's out there in these maps. So one example would be health, a huge example, and we've got the map right here of um, obesity in the St. Louis area. What, where does this data come from, and then what can you learn by plotting this out on the map like this? So this is coming from the Center for Disease Control, and so this map shows us, clearly there's a cluster, of, there's a cluster here that shows a spatial pattern of uh, populations that are obese and not obese. And Seems to be central corridor or, or urban core, I should say. Urban corridor, and so we want to understand what's, what are the factors associated with this. Is it a lack of um, grocery stores, such as Deerbrooks or Snooks, that are not there, and populations have to rely on fast food uh, type Seven um, Elevens and dollar dollar stores to get their food. And now you can plot that on a map. You can plot all the grocery stores and see if it aligns with where the obesity is. All food deserts and like where people just don't have access to healthy food, and so everybody has to eat, right? And so where are they getting their food? What type of access do you have? Would be one example. Um, what type of parks are there? Are the parks safe for people to exercise? Are are there? I know some of these areas, but are the sidewalks uh, passable? And so um, 
in some of the areas, there, yes, there is a sidewalk, but it's not passable because the sidewalk is very difficult to even walk on because it's been neglected for several decades. One of the uh, the big boosts to this industry in St. Louis, the big boost is going to be NGA in North St. Louis. What kind of impact? We've seen companies like Boundless come here, this research with St. Louis University and the partnership, but what's the big benefit of having NGA in the region? Well, I think NGA is important because, um, not because of its, its sure size, but it's going to be about a $2, million, a $2 billion investment. So any time you have this, this type of investment, there's going to be spillover effects. Um, so this is actually, in my opinion, one of the greatest experiments that's going to happen in American cities. Uh, in an American, most of these facilities are built out in the suburbs. This is going to be built in the core of St. Louis City. So we, we're going to have a true quasi-experimental uh, design here. Pre-NGA campus, post-NGA campus. And we're going to be able to see the spillover effects from the investment and the campus itself on social and economic phenomenon. This will probably never happen. I shouldn't say, it's going to be very rare if this happens again in a core part of an, a major American city. And so this is probably going to be one of the most studied economic development activities um, over the next decade. Because people from not only the, around the United States want to understand this, but people from around the world want to understand what, this two, what, what is this $2 billion investment actually going to do for a part of the city that has been historically ne uh, neglected. And we saw the maps from the 1930s and 40s. That part of the city where the NGA was redlined. So we want to see what the positive effects of true economic development in these areas are going to be. I guess the walls aren't up, so so most of that is hard to measure at this point. But you have been looking into crime, for instance. So, so we've been looking at pre-clearance and post. So we looked at 16 months before the site was uh, determined. And now we're looking at post-16 months where it's been cleared. And so we're able to we have some descriptive evidence at this point that there is some benefits of crime, certain crimes being reduced around... Uh, the new campus site. And so that's what we do expect, all right, that you make this investment, crime should go down. Now the question, we, we're not really able to answer at this point whether crime's been reduced or it's been displaced to other parts of the city. And we're, we just, we need more data uh, to get a sense, are we just pushing crime to other parts of the city? Or in fact, is crime actually being reduced? was that number on the number of homicides? Yeah, and the I would have to check. Okay. Um, but, but we know that there's been a pre-post um, decline. Yeah, but that, that paper, um, hopefully that get paper gets published um, over the summer and the fall. And then the numbers will be available then. And then something else that came up toward the end of the presentation, uh, the seminar here, was uh, not just migration within the region, but something that you've discovered about migration in and in this case out of the region. Yeah, so so um, so there's there's a lot of questions about uh, people's ability to move, and so when we look at the map, you see that that people are leaving the city, people are moving into the city. So one of the questions we can look at is um, how many people are moving within the past year, how fluid is the population? So we can map that out and get a sense of uh, what's how stable the population is in some neighborhoods at some municipalities and try to get a sense how many people are moving from the city to the county, from St. Louis County to St. Charles County, because it allows you to, to do this. You mentioned that um, 
is it the first time that we've seen a net outward migration of African-American people? To see this now, um, not only for the city, uh, but for the region. We're starting to see uh, a net loss of the African-American population. This is not true for white. You know, whites have been leaving the region for a while now. Um, but this would be um, the first time for the city that we've seen this now for a pattern of several years of the African-American population leaving the city to the suburbs. We're actually seeing for the region itself a small decline, not major, but a small decline of the African-American population for the metropolitan region. And so we want to keep track of this because right now it's small. We're talking a couple thousand, three thousand or so. Um, but if that number gets into double digits, 10, 15,000, that's very different, right? That you're seeing, starting to see a significant out-migration of the black population. And so we want to develop these models to say, oh, are they moving to Atlanta? Are they moving to Houston? Are they moving to Dallas, Phoenix? Um, and so that's that's part of our, another project that we're looking at. We just detected this uh, within the past um, 18 months and started to look at how, how severe. It's not a big problem at this point, but it's something that we want to track both for the city and for the region. Where can people go if they want to get the uh, the details and the dates or RSVP at slu.edu? slu.edu, and um, we have a, a website uh, through the Office of Vice President for Research that has the GeoSLU webpage, and the, our information will be there. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Ness Sandoval from SLU. Coming up next, we'll talk with Patty Hagen from T-Rex on KMOX. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome back, KMOX. My uh, partner, Travis Sheridan, is in Sydney this week, so I'm going solo on this edition of the show here with Patty Hagen of T-Rex. Talk about, we, we just had the, uh, not groundbreaking, but a wall smashing for Geosaurus. Uh, what is Geosaurus going to be? So Geosaurus is, will be, or is going to be, already is, a geospatial resource and innovation center to serve the community um, so that we can all help this geospatial industry cluster grow in St. Louis. And how has it been so far? I know companies like Boundless have moved here, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, they're, they're moving dirt, they're getting started there. Um, talk about this push to make St. Louis an epicenter of this industry. Right. So we have great assets here in St. Louis that can be leveraged to support the growth of this industry already. And if we put these things together, uh, these assets together, and we draw uh, and, and we create a hub such that the universities, industry, students, researchers, innovators, uh, small companies can connect and collaborate with one another, we're going to build St. Louis as a center of expertise and excellence and innovation in this field. And there's nobody, there's no other city in the United States that has these assets available. We have the greatest universities that can also help to um, fortify this position. And so, you know, we're, we already have a great cluster and we can make this the best in the world. For somebody who has not set foot in here, so they don't know about the collaboration that happens when people are working in close proximity, the exchange of ideas, describe the, the feeling of T-Rex and then how you hope to, to translate that to what you'll have here on the fourth floor specifically for geospatial. Right. So um, we're a nonprofit organization. 
We were founded by the economic development leadership of St. Louis, with, frankly with not much money, so we've had, we have sort of a scrappy history of, of building things and making things work. And over time, we've really grown. We have over 200 companies now in the building, over, nearly 500 members. Um, and what happens here is that we have resources available for innovators and startups that are co-located in our facility, um, such as Cultivation Capital, I-10, Arch Grants, and uh, Veterans Business Resource Center, and other great organizations. And having those organizations, as well as young innovators um, and universities participating together, then you add the NGA and industry dealing with within this whole um, uh, world, this whole ecosystem. That's where innovation, those edges, that's where innovation starts to happen. When people start to meet one another, they create new ways of doing things, they bounce ideas off of one another, and really create a supportive environment where innovation is encouraged. And sometimes failure happens, but that's even a learning experience. So it's, it's important for St. Louis, and, and that's what's happening here at T-Rex. If Travis were here, he would have interjected his trademark phrase, serendipitous collisions. It's true. That's what happens, yeah. And there is a little bit of design to that as well. So when you, when you create a community around um, something like an industry, a geospatial industry like this, you want to make sure that you're getting the people at the table who can bring the highest value to support innovative ideas. And so having the NGA involved here, having the USGIF, United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation, um, the um, uh, Open Geospatial Consortium, these are national organizations, having them involved here along with our great universities, that, that also, you know, those, that's community building. And, you know, so you want to be really conscious as you help to bring a community together that you're bringing all the right players to the table. And how did Bayer get involved in this? This is powered by Bayer, this floor. And so is it a workforce need for them or what, what prompted them to want to get involved and sponsor this? Right. So, um, you know, geospatial technology actually permeates every industry. And Bayer is a great example of that. So one of the, you know, one of the things that they're deeply involved with is precision agriculture. And precision agriculture requires geospatial data in order for it to be successful. And so they, you may remember Monsanto bought the Climate Corp, which also has a very deep geospatial um, uh, bench. And um, so they're very involved in uh, this industry already. So when we talked to them about being a partner with us, they were all in almost from the very beginning. And um, Al was immediately interested in helping to support this because of their tech talent needs, but also because of innovation needs that um, all of these industries need to grow their businesses. Another organization that you, you spotlighted was the Missouri Technology Corporation, which has helped with this, but has also been a big help for T-Rex in general over the years. And other organizations like Arch Grants, they're matching investments into firms. Uh, what do you, when you take a look at the, the political landscape in the state, where do you see the Missouri Technology Corporation now, and, and what do you hope they do to either sustain it or rework it? Or Because some people are worried you know, that it might go away. What are you seeing right now? 
Yeah, I um, I'm not on the inside of any you know conversations, but um, we we have good partners at the state level, and um, um, although there's although currently you know it's been it's being less funded than it has been in the past, I think uh, Governor Parson has expressed a lot of interest in ensuring um, that innovation continues um, and that the state wants to continue to support that. Um, we, we believe that MTC has been an important element of that. Um, so we hope that the legislature, um, you know, as they look to what the next chapter of the state's role in encouraging innovation is going to be, that they look at MTC's successes, um, T-Rex being one of them. Uh, they're one of our founding partners and, um, uh, and, and the companies that they've helped to support as well. It's, it's been an incredible resource for our state. And, um, and, and I feel confident that the legislature and the governor will, will think really uh, well uh, about how to do these kinds of things into the future. And then something else that was mentioned was a partnership with the convention center as they contemplate renovations. And, and that's more placemaking outside of T-Rex, right? What do you hope to accomplish there? Well, Kitty Ratcliffe from the CVB and her team, what a great group they are. And they have some incredible expansion plans for their space uh, on the inside, of course, and then um, and then for expansion outside of their walls. And one of the things um, I've been talking to Kitty about, and she's been a great partner, is what this whole landscape could look like um, w in, with regard to what she wants to build and that what our hopes are for creating an innovation campus here. And um, I, I just think it's an opportunity for t uh, for. St. Louis to leverage a number of wonderful things that are happening and put them together, you know, and communicate and collaborate in a way that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's what that's what that effort is. It's just coordinating with people and trying to see how we can help one another and support one another and bringing new, other parties to the table to make these visions and dreams come true. Well, for the thousands of people who come for meetings and conventions and events, they might only see a, a block or two of St. Louis. And so if there's this technology campus that hooks into the convention center, that could be a first impression changer right there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Every day I see thousands of out-of-town uh, visitors, you know, coming from the convention center, and how wonderful would it be for them to see a campus like that, to see this growth, to see this development, and we even think that there may be opportunities for the C uh, Convention Visitors Bureau and T-Rex to partner on things that will support advanced information technology initiatives. So, for example, if the USGIF brings the big geo intelligence conference here um, in the next few years, there could be, you know, side things happening over at T-Rex that we could support. Geosaurus could be a part of it. Um, and to have a partner like Kitty and her team, it's just phenomenal. So we support them all the way. We want to help them. We want to leverage, you know, what we can to, uh, in our little organization, leverage what we can to help them and to really make something important here. More with Patty Hagen of T-Rex after this on KMOX. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on Kangam OX. Talking with Patty Hagen of T-Rex about, specifically about Geosaurus here on the fourth floor. 
But how is the rest of the building? How full are you? Any other renovations that are planned or any that are wrapping up? Or how is how is T-Rex as a whole? Yeah, we're doing great. Um, we're, we've built out additional space um, in the building. Uh, we just finished a renovation on the third floor of the, of the facility that's beautiful. Um, Remiger Design is doing uh, the Geosaurus renovation, and Arcturus did the third floor renovation. And what we're trying to do is kind of spread the love among our architecture friends, um, so everybody kind of gets a crack at the facility, which has been fun. Um, and then we're doing some additional work on the fifth floor, which is our innovation conference center, and there's co-working space there as well. We've we've had to build out more conference and meeting room space because we're so busy with that as well. So, um, yeah, it's a lot going on. Could we see T-Rex building two or a expansion on the back of the building or something like that if, if the demand just keeps growing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love to see that, you know. We'll build Geosars first. <laughs> and uh, and then, uh, of course, we're open to, uh, you know, making things work and partnering and, you um, and, uh, of course, we're open to everything. That's the fun part of this. Uh, it's just uh, downtown St. Louis is a land of opportunity. And um, it's beautiful. We have historic buildings. We have great restaurants. We have a great community. Lots of support. And um, I encourage everybody to think about downtown as a great place to be, great hub, um, and a great place to be involved with. Is Geosaurus related to the T-Rex? Is it a herbivore, an omnivore? Have you determined what the characteristics of Geosaurus are? Okay, so I encourage you to Google Geosaurus, and one of the things that will come up is it was an actual dinosaur, and um, it, it lived in the sea, and um, it is its nickname is the mother of all great lizards. So, hmm, I think I need a sweatshirt that says that. <laughs> And, and the, the location mapping technology, just think about every time you download an app and it says, do I have permission to use your location? Even if you think to yourself, why does this need my location? They all use it in some way or another. So this geospatial stuff is behind the scenes, even if you don't see it working in the technology in your hand, you know, right in front of your eyes. Yeah, right. And I mean, honestly, if you think about maps and how industry can use location intelligence for um, making business decisions, it's critical. So for example, even in healthcare, Express Scripts folks showed me how they're using heat maps to map the opioid crisis. And then that impacts, by using those heat maps, that impacts how they deliver pharmaceuticals, the instructions that they give for the delivery of those pharmaceuticals, uh, uh, doctors uh, and nurses involvement in um, uh, within those heat maps and the delivery of pharmaceuticals so it, it, it permeates everything that industry is involved with now it was really an important business decision maker I well, hope you enjoyed the wall smashing did you have fun I did it was a lot of fun I wanted to smash some more but Sledgehammer's kind of heavy. so <laughs> Come back after everybody else clears out, right? And just grab one of those sledgehammers there. Thank you so much for doing this, Patty. Hey, thank you. Thank Where can people go for more info on T-Rex? Go to our website. Uh, go to our red website, downtowntrex.org, and there will be a link. It should be up today, but there will be a link to Geosaurus, and it will give you some uh, photography and our logo and everything about uh, the future of what this, uh, what this new... Uh, 
uh, uh, center is going to look like. Awesome. Patty Hagen, T-Rex, thank you. Thank you, dear. I appreciate it. We'll be back on KMOX after this. Now, back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome back. Michael Calhoun with you. And let's get into the cannabis business that's growing in Missouri as medical marijuana gets ready to launch. Diane Sarkowski of Canna Advisors came from Colorado to hold a seminar on how to start a business in this new industry in Missouri. Started by asking Diane, what exactly is Canna Advisors? We really work with new businesses primarily, uh, but really any business all the way from its concept all the way through the exit. Um, primarily in new markets. That means first you go after the business plan and financial modeling, then you go through an application process. Then it's all, you know, all hands on deck to get your facilities built out and up and running, training those employees. And then we also help with expansion services and then an exit strategy. We had our very very first client uh, from Connecticut that just sold to a public company for $80 million. In terms of the the business aspect of it, uh, how does Missouri compare with our medical marijuana constitutional amendment, maybe, compared to some of the other states you've gone through? Or what are some some points in this that people should really be aware of if they're just thinking about getting into this industry here? I really like uh, the way Amendment 2 was written. I think that they really took a lot of guidance from other programs that have rolled out prior to this and really have taken a broad approach on how to put together the best medical marijuana program for the patients here. Um, Some of the things that I really like is that, number one, it's a very robust program, meaning that they plan to issue plenty of licenses based on the population of Missouri. So that really is a good thing for patients because we've seen states with even a larger population, but if they don't have enough licenses for the businesses, there are issues with patients getting access, there are issues with patients getting supply, um, lack of product availability, lack of innovation. So what we like about the Missouri program is there's going to be, you know, 60 or so cultivation licenses, uh, 70 or so manufacturing licenses, and probably 192 or so dispensary licenses. So that's really good. Another thing that we really like about the Missouri medical marijuana program is that they have a list of very broad conditions uh, to help patients that will qualify them for the medical marijuana program. And they ultimately give the decision-making process to the physician who's caring for the patient to make that decision. So really, if if the physician feels that the patient could be benefited by using medical cannabis, they can make a recommendation. In terms of getting a business started, what do you go through with your presentation, with your seminar? What do people need to know? I mean, how, in, how involved is this process versus starting some other kind of business that might not be as regulated as this? It's very involved. Uh, there are things that people have to do for this license that you wouldn't have to do for just starting uh, an, an, any other business, really. Uh, all the owners and uh, employees have to go through background checks. They have to be fingerprinted. They have to sometimes provide, the owners have to provide financial statements. Um, They have to list out things like uh, community action plans. How are they going to contribute back to the communities that they're in? Security plans to ensure that their facilities and employees are trained so that they can have a safe environment for the patients. Um, There's a number of things that these businesses have to go through that are over and above uh, what other businesses need to do. 
from your experience in other states, where's where's the real rush or where's the real interest? Is it in the cultivation? Is it in you know some of the products like concentrates or edibles? Is it in the retail? Is that where people's minds maybe go first? Is the dispensary on the corner, or is it in uh, some of the ancillary companies like somebody's got to provide the point of sale service software, for instance? Where's the biggest interest in the in the industry? I think it's all of those things. I think the interest really comes from the relevant experience that the individual has. So there's a lot of outside industries that have experience that you can really lend into the cannabis industry as well. In the manufacturing process, anybody coming from a food and beverage or a logistics-based business would fit right into that into that suite. Um, from cultivation, of course, farmers, anybody with an agricultural or horticultural background is, is great for cultivation. We see lots of people who are already doing nurseries, but maybe different plants or different vegetables um, that are interested in getting in cultivation. And then on the dispensary side, I see a lot of you know former medical doctors or nurses that are very interested in providing this kind of service to their local communities. Even brands have a big play. So we're seeing you know really anybody who has experience in any of those areas it it correlates to the cannabis industry just like any other. Do you find that different states, especially with how insular it is and the lack of interstate commerce, different uh, different approaches emerge depending on different states or even different packaging or just what are some of the differences in, in the personality of the industry from state to state and, and what can you maybe pick out in Missouri that might help figure out where we're going to go? Well, I think that many of the challenges are because it's still federally illegal. We are forced to have really a different set of rules and regulations for every state that passes some type of program. So even businesses that operate in multiple states, they can't carry out their business exactly the same way from state to state because every state has a unique set of rules. So packaging, labeling, the the exact um, messaging that you have to have on those packages and labels, that all varies from state to state. And we see that you know the states that have uh, worked with the businesses and over time developed those rules and regulations are the ones that are really thriving, the ones that can apply the real life you know, expectation from the rules as they're written. It really helps with figuring out what needs to be adjusted and changed as the industry matures. How big of a role do... Uh I don't want to call them chains necessarily, but if, if a company operates uh, in Oregon and Colorado or Colorado and Illinois currently, uh, is that common or is it pretty much uh, for the most part, each state has their own companies that stay within? Are we going to see a lot of outside companies coming into Missouri, I guess, is what I'm wondering, or is this going to be a lot of homegrown business? You will see some multi-state operators, but they will be partnered up with local Missouri residents. Part of Amendment 2 requires that ownership is 51% for Missouri residents. So it's going to be a locally-based business, which we're really excited about. And in terms of getting a business off the ground, people might be familiar with they go to the bank for a loan or they find the capital through, you know, selling equity stakes or something like that. What are the with with the federal prohibition and with the banking industry issues, how do you get started with a marijuana business? Where do you get I guess the seed funding from? Well, it's, it's a challenge. You can't go to the bank and get a business loan like another business would. Um, so it's done by private investment firms, uh, people, hard money lenders, uh, sometimes friends and family. 
and people just kind of start out in their own networks to see where they can raise the capital from. What uh, what questions do you usually get when this this new industry enters a state like we're about to see in Missouri? What do you expect to hear from folks who are who are here tonight? I think people are going to want to know how much money is going to be required to own and operate one of these facilities, taking into account even the amount of attorneys and lobbyists and licensing fees that you'll have to pay, building out those facilities, hiring the people. All those dollar figures add up, but people are just really unsure what it's going to take. Uh, the second thing is that they they want to know how they can apply the knowledge that they have to the cannabis industry. So we'll be helping to explain what relevant experience really transforms into the cannabis industry that they can use to their advantage as well. And what's the uh, the reception among the local communities who, whether it's a, a cultivation center or a dispensary, what kind of a role does does community outreach, I guess, play in this? Community outreach is very important. For most people, most of us in our lifetime, we weren't around when cannabis was legal. It was legal in the United States for over 100 years. We had cannabis in all of our pharmacies, but we weren't alive back then. So it's really a lot about educating the communities, and the businesses have to be good stewards, so they have to know a lot of the history. They need to know about what conditions and the regulations are from Missouri. They have to be able to teach that to their local communities as well. How, how do things go from here? We're still really early for the from the Missouri process and the timeline and you know getting started with, with uh, putting the framework in. So where do things kind of unfold from here for this state, especially given your experience, how you've seen it in other states? Well, you know, for Missouri, I'm really excited because it's one of the first, uh, you know, Midwestern uh, states to pass medical marijuana. Illinois has done so, but they think they were very, very conservative in rolling out their program. It was even called a pilot program because they weren't sure they were going to even continue it initially. It's bordered by eight states. Um, Most of them don't really have... um, medical marijuana programs, none that are robust anyway. Um, And I think that um, the way that the Missouri market will continue to evolve is to probably add more conditions. Uh, They they might add more licenses based on patient demand and maybe eventually pass some legislation to allow for full adult use. Is that an easy transition, especially for businesses who are already on the med side? If, you know, a few years down the road, Missouri does open it up for rec too? It does usually favor the businesses that were put into place first because they have the experience then working in the market. And it's really up to the state on how they would roll out a new program. Most states have given preference to the businesses that were open first and allowed them to make that shift into the adult use uh, market. And then after a period of time, they'll allow for more applicants to apply and get, get more licenses. Have you had more interest in one part of the state for your seminars than, than another? St. Louis more than KC or vice versa or surprising interest in Springfield or where do you think the epicenter is going to be? You know, it's hard to tell. I feel like it's pretty evenly matched between Kansas City and St. Louis. I think Springfield is a little quieter right now, but I feel like they also have maybe more of an agricultural mindset and maybe they're, um, you know, thinking about the hemp bill that just passed and the opportunities that might uh, lie ahead for them in hemp.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Nothing Impossible. We'll talk with you again next week. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.